No, it's, uh, it, well, it, it, for me, it seems that it is the never-ending series. I make uh, jokes about it, but I, I really don't have an end point in sight. I really don't have a, an, an end uh, game pertaining to this. The more I study, the more I read on these things, the bigger it gets. Genesis 126, it tells us that after God created the earth, or recreated the earth, we should say, uh, the earth was without form and void. It was in a chaotic state. God recreated the earth according to his plan and his purpose, and then he decides to make man. Genesis 126. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That means an exact duplication in kind. And let, him have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. It's interesting to note that the Bible does not say God made man to fellowship with. It doesn't say God made man because his heart was so full of love he just needed somebody else. It doesn't say that God made man because he was lonely and was looking for somebody to hang around with. It says God made man for man to have dominion in the earth. It's an indisputable fact that man was created to have dominion here in this earth. It's not widely accepted, not widely recognized, but it's indisputable. So, verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Now, the word subdue means to keep under your control. In other words, he's talking about the exercise of the dominion that he made man for in verse 26. Replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, we've uh, talked before and, and tried to make the point on a couple of different occasions at least that uh, the first chapter of Genesis gives us ten times where it tells us that God said something. The principle is God saw, God said, and it was so. Now, the Bible is very, written very specifically. These are uh, scriptures. This is truth that God dictated to Moses letter for letter in the Hebrew language. And God could have identified this, could have summarized, could have told the story any way he wanted to. He could have said, and there were ten things that I said, let there be, and then just give him a list of ten things. Could have saved a lot of space in writing if he'd done it that way. But I believe the Bible is exact in the way that God gave it to Moses, and it tells us that God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, and God said 10 different times, let there be. Now, the only um, explanation we can draw from this is that it's showing us God's pattern, God's means, God's way of his exercise of dominion over a chaotic earth to reestablish it in the manner in which he wanted it to be. In other words, 10 different times, God looked into something that was not and said, let there be. And then he makes man and says, let man have dominion over the work of our hands and over all the earth. Now, we don't want to build a doctrine on one verse of scripture. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So let me give you two others real quick. I won't turn there, but you can write them down uh, look them up if you want to when you have time. Psalm 115 verse 16 said, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. Now, you don't have to be too intelligent to realize that God's saying that he gave the earth to man. For what purpose? Well, for man to have ex to exercise dominion over in, in the earth. Another verse of scripture is over in Psalm verse 8. 
beginning in verse 4. It says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little lower than uh, the angels. King James says, translates that as angels, but it's literally the word Elohim. Talking about the Godhead himself. Thou hast made him a little lower than the Godhead. And it's given it and it's crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. So you've got at least three and there are many other scriptures that we could take if we wanted to, to use the time this evening. But there are at least three scriptures that we can point to uh, immediately that identify that God created man for the purpose of having dominion. Now, if God has just shown us in Genesis 1 that his exercise of dominion in changing or reshaping or forming, whatever word you want to use, the earth from a chaotic state to a perfect state was the use of his words. And God said, if man is made after the image and likeness of God in exact duplication in kind, what do you expect God wanted man's method of exercising dominion to be? There's got to be a reason why the Bible tells us over and over again, God said. I believe the reason is because it's showing us that the exercise of man's dominions is dominion in the earth is through his words. Now, there are a number of things that, uh, that we could look at, but look again at, uh, at verse 28. A number of things that we want to look at, but verse 28, notice he says, here's the command that God gives to man. Once man is identified or once it's revealed to man, what his purpose is. He said, replenish and subdue the earth. Keep it under your control. Keep it under your control. Keep it under your control. Now, we know what happened. We know that, uh, that sin entered the scene. We know that Satan came on the scene and deceived the woman. He first attacked God's word, which is always the devil's first uh, means of operation. First thing he said was, what God said wasn't true. And then the implication is, he's saying you're going to miss out on something really good if you just obey God. Both of those are lies. They were lies then and they always will be lies. The Bible says that Eve took of the fruit of the tree they were commanded not to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve took of that fruit and ate it and gave it to Adam. So apparently he was standing right there. Now let me ask you a question. Since the whole purpose of man's creation was for him to have dominion in the earth, since the first thing that God told man was not don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the first thing that we have record of that he told man was to replenish and have dominion over the earth, subdue it, keep it under your control then we should look at Adam to identify what action did he take when Satan was talking to his wife? What did Adam do? Absolutely nothing. What did Adam say? Absolutely nothing. Now, a lot of times people in this life, Christians, well-meaning, love God with all their hearts, go through significant portions of their life, maybe even all of their life, asking the questions, why did this happen to me? Well, let's ask the question about Adam. Why did spiritual death come upon Adam? Because he didn't say a word. Because he didn't exercise the dominion that God had given him. Was it God's fault? Not at all. God put man in charge. He did not tell Adam, go into the earth and have dominion. 
subdue the earth, but if you get in trouble, don't worry, I'll bail you out. He didn't tell him, have dominion on the earth, but don't do anything on your own. Ask me and I'll take care of stuff, which is the way that a lot of the church world seems to operate. They're asking God to do things that God gave us dominion to do. The first thing that we have record of Adam saying after the fall is when he heard the voice of God walking in the garden. He says to God, I heard your voice and I was afraid. Fear was the first thing that was identified. They knew they were naked and they were ashamed. But fear is the first thing that's identified with the fall. Now, let me ask you this. What is the difference in God saying, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all the works of my hands? What's the difference in that and the scripture we've been looking at extensively on our Sunday morning series over in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19 where Jesus said, and I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is that not the same thing? I realize this is a different way to say it. But is that not the same thing that God told Adam in the garden? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is that not the same thing as saying replenish and subdue the earth and have dominion over it? We see from the same pattern in Genesis 1 that the exercise of that dominion must have been the same way that God exercised his dominion to recreate the earth in his, in, according to his plan and purpose through words. So he tells Adam, replenish and subdue the earth. If not through words, then what other way is there? We certainly don't have any pattern in the scripture for anything else. So he tells Adam to subdue the earth. What does Adam do? He goes silent. What was the impact of his silence? He loosed sin and death on the earth. Now I want you to turn with me. Let's look at, uh, at Numbers chapter 14. Well, wait a minute. Before you leave Genesis chapter 1, let me point something else out. Notice one of the things that the Bible says related to part of God's creation. One of the things that God created with his words. Notice in verses 11 and 12. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Now, I want you to notice it doesn't say after its kind. It says after his kind. Now, the only his in reference here in Genesis chapter 1 is God. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. In other words, it's after God's kind. Now, what does that mean? Well, one thing that it means, let me finish the verse. The fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. The his kind is a reference to the seed being in itself. And that's the reason that God was able to use words and create the earth or recreate the earth, reform, reshape the earth into a, a, a habitable place. Because his words produced after his kind. His words produced according to the will and the purpose for, uh, in which he spoke those words. And it changed the physical realm. So it tells us what the result was in verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind 
And God saw that it was good. Folks, I want you to understand something. That is the law of Genesis. Everything produces after his kind. The seed is in itself. The seed is in itself. Now, if God is created after man's own image and in his likeness, as the original Hebrew says, an exact duplication in kind, then what does that mean? That means your seed is in yourself. You're made after the image of God. You're made in his likeness. Your seed is in yourself just like his seed was in his, himself. His seed being in himself is demonstrated by his words creating the earth, reforming the earth, reshaping the earth according to his plan and purpose. He's telling us that your words will do the same thing in your life and in your world. That's why the exercise of authority, the exercise of man's dominion is totally and completely dependent on words. Now, Numbers chapter 14. I won't read the whole thing here. I trust that you're familiar enough with the story so that we can skip over a little bit of it and still have a working knowledge. But in Numbers chapter 13, it tells us that the children of Israel who have been delivered by Moses from the bondage of Egypt, you remember how God did great miracles in Egypt before they left, 10 different plagues and really nine plagues and the death of the firstborn. Each one of those plagues exacted judgment on one of the gods of, of Egypt. It was a demonstration of God's power above all the gods of, that Egypt knew and worshipped. Finally, the death of the firstborn and Pharaoh relents and lets the children of Israel go. Moses leads them out, comes to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's changed his mind by then. and He's coming out and he's going to kill them all. God stands between Israel and Egypt, the armies of Egypt, with a pillar of fire. People say to Moses, we're trapped. We've got mountains on two sides. We've got the Red Sea behind us. There's nowhere to go. What are we going to do? And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he cries out to God and God says, what are you crying to me for? Now, I've said before, but it's, I, I, I can't think about this story or come to this place in this story without making the comment. That seems to me to be a perfect place to cry out to God. But God is trying to show Moses that because of the work that God has given him to do, he has authority and dominion to act on his own. God will back him up. He tells him, stretch forth your hand over the sea, and he does in the Red Sea parts. It doesn't depart, it parts. Makes an opening, and the children of Israel go on dry ground, go across on dry ground. The pillar of fire lifts. The Egyptian army follows after him and drowns in the Red Sea. Moses takes them to Mount Sinai where they receive the law. They mess up before the law even comes down the mountain. But over a period of time, takes them probably two and a half or so years, they come to the promised land. There's millions of them, anywhere from five to seven million, the estimates are. And so Moses sends 12 spies, one, tri- one spy from each of the, one member from each of the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land to spy out the land, to see how to take the land. Well, the 13th chapter of Numbers tells us about their report. Ten of the 12 spies come back saying, the land's a good land just like God said, but there are giants in that land, and they're stronger than us, and we can't take it. Two of the 12, Caleb and Joshua, said we're able to do it because God's on our side. Not because they looked stronger in Caleb and Joshua's eyes, then the enemies, 
Not because Israel looked stronger than their enemies. Not because they saw something different than the other ten saw. But they chose to speak according to what they believed and not according to what they saw. Now, folks, you need to understand something. When God looked into the darkness in Genesis chapter 1, he didn't say, wow, it's dark. That's what a lot of Christians do, thinking they're being honest. No, God spoke what he desired. He spoke the end result. He said, light be. Caleb and Joshua looked at the cities with walls around them, the city of Jericho and others. He saw the strength of the enemies. He saw the difficulty that there would be militarily to overcome the enemies. But they remembered that God said the land was theirs, Israel's. So they said, we can do it because God's on our side. Caleb and Joshua didn't feel any stronger than the other ten did. They didn't see anything that encouraged them any more than the ten did within the promised land. They're acting simply and specifically on what God had said. And he said the land was yours. So we'll pick up the story in, in Numbers chapter 14. You've got two reports. You've got the evil report of the ten spies. They brought up an evil report under the children of Israel saying the land through which we had gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. They're stronger than we are and we're like grasshoppers in their sight and in our own sight too. But the congregation, the children of Israel, the, 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 the whole of the body hasn't made a decision yet. They just heard the reports. They're in the same position as we are when the doctor tells us something's wrong. Or when the circumstances identify that there's a problem. The decision hasn't yet been made. It's made in chapter 14 verse 1. Notice what it says. Faced with two reports. Ten people say we can't do it. Two people saying we can. The decision is made in verse chapter 14 verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice. And cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them. Now, folks, please remember the seed is in itself. Man is created after God's kind for the purpose of having dominion. Dominion is exercised through the words that we speak. So when they say something, when they speak, it's going to be them planting a seed for their future. For the outcome of this, this circumstance. And all the congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had all died in this wilderness? Now, Caleb and Joshua aren't finished. They try to keep the people from rebelling against God, but there comes a point where it's too late. And I want you to skip down with me to verse 28 of Numbers chapter 14. God says, say unto them, he's speaking to Moses to speak to the children of Israel on his behalf. He said, say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord. Now, the words as truly as, as are in italics, which means the translators added them. But they recognize that the original language, the original Hebrew, is stronger than God just saying, I'm alive. So they added in there, as truly as I live. Now, we read that as kind of God's opening comment Boy, you guys have really messed up as truly as I live. But it means something a lot more serious and specific than that. As truly as I live means the way God lives. Well, how does God live? Eternally. How does God live in unchanging form? 
So it literally means, some translations translate it this way, it's the oracle of God. The oracle of God just simply means it's an eternal and unchanging law. So God is telling the children of Israel, here's an eternal and unchanging law. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now, folks, that didn't just apply to them at that point in time. If it's an eternal law, that means it applies to everybody. If it's an unchanging law, it means there are no exceptions. It's an eternal and unchanging law. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. And it's the same question that I asked you in Gen- about Genesis 1, and 28. What's the difference in God saying the eternal and unchanging law is this? As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. How is that any different than what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19? I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Is it not a different way of saying the same thing? He's saying your words determine what your outcome is going to be. Why is that? Because you're created after your own kind. I'm not just talking about Christians. You're you're not created after your own kind. You're created after God's own kind. The seed is in you. The seed is the words that you speak. It works positively or it works negatively. In this case, it worked to their disadvantage. Because they said, we wish we had died in Egypt. Well, they've already left Egypt. It's too late for that. But second best in their complaint is, would God that we had died in this wilderness? That can be arranged. And over the next 40 years it was. Folks, everybody in this story got exactly what they said. The ten spies said they couldn't and they died before the day was over. The congregation said, we wish we had died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness over the next 40 years. Caleb and Joshua said we could. It took them 40 years, but 40 years later they did. Everybody in the story got exactly what they said Because the eternal and unchanging law is you'll have what you say. Now, Jesus told us that in in Mark chapter 11. Jesus changed his circumstance. Why don't you turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. I know I'm not telling you anything new, folks, but I'm, I'm not trying to get new information to you. I'm trying to get you to act on old information. Because it's not what we know with our heads that the Bible says is what we know, what we really know is what we live on. What we're acting on is really the proof that we know it. Jesus changed his circumstance. He comes by and sees a fig tree that was created after God's kind. It was supposed to produce figs, but it doesn't have any figs on it. It's got leaves. Now they tell me that fig trees over in Egypt and uh, Israel, excuse me, Work a little differently than what we're used to. We're used to fig trees having leaves or any other tree having a leaf first and then it producing fruit. But apparently that's not the way fig trees work in Israel. When the leaves show up, the fruit shows up at the same time. So Jesus comes and sees the, the leaves on the tree and that's a sign or should be a sign that the fruit is there. But he finds that there's no fruit there. So what does Jesus do? Jesus exercises dominion on the earth. He curses the fig tree and says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Now, folks, this is a perfect example of the kind of dominion that Adam was supposed to exercise in the Garden of Eden. You find an unfruitful circumstance and you remove it from your life. 
You don't put up with junk. You don't put up with stuff. You don't put up with stuff that just becomes a distraction or draws away from other things that are good and helpful. You remove them. So Jesus does. He curses the fig tree. Next morning they come by, see the fig tree dried up in the roots, and Peter calls it to his remembrance. And Jesus answers in verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Some translations say have the God kind of faith. Now what would the God kind of faith be if not the same kind of faith that God used to reshape and reform the earth in Genesis chapter 1? The example of that is he looks into the circumstance. Instead of identifying or speaking what the circumstance is, he speaks according to what he desires. And it was so. Now Jesus says, have the God kind of faith, which means he's just exercised the God kind of faith as an example. What did he do? He saw an unfruitful circumstance in the form of a tree. He didn't say, you sorry tree, you're supposed to have fruit. Well, at least the leaves are pretty. He curses the fig tree. He says what he desires, which is for the unfruitful circumstance, in this case a tree, to be removed from his path. And it was so. Now Jesus says that you can do the same thing. Notice Jesus did not say, don't try this on your own because I, I did this only because I'm the son of God. Which is what a lot of the church world thinks about Jesus doing works and healings and miracles and so forth. But instead Jesus says, you use the God kind of faith. If he didn't intend for them to, be, to use that same kind of faith, he wouldn't have told them what it was and how it worked. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is saying the eternal unchanging law of God is, you can have what you say from your heart. You can have what you say from your heart. Now, what does it mean to speak from your heart? What it means to speak independent of your five physical senses. It means not to speak according to the circumstances, the way things appear, but to speak according to what God said and what you desire. Speak the end result. Now, how can we do that? Because God gave you authority here on the earth. His seed is in you. His seed is his word spoken through your lips. Jesus said the whole mystery of the kingdom of God is if a man should speak the word of God into his heart. Jesus then goes forward and tells us a little bit more about how the God kind of faith works in verse 24. He said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, what things soever you desire. Notice he didn't say what things soever you see. What things soever you desire. You're supposed to look past the things that appear in the physical realm and create your desires based on something that's unseen, based on something that's revealed to us in God's word. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, the things you desire, and you shall have them. Now, that's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 23 is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus goes further and says this will work in prayer too. What's he saying? He's saying the eternal unchanging law of God is God will deal with you according to the way you speak into his ears. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. 
He's saying his power is activated by your words. Notice when the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth became without form and void and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Nothing happened until God spoke. It wasn't just the presence of the Holy Ghost that changed things. It was the Word of God that gave the Holy Ghost something to work with. And then things changed. Why? Because the unchanging eternal law of God is God deals with us according to what we speak. God's power follows His Word. Now, I want you to look with me to another couple of scriptures. I want to cover these real quick. I want you to look with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45 is a prophecy that Isaiah gives about a man named Cyrus, King Cyrus, who will deliver the children of Israel or release the children of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. Now, the children of Israel were captives of Babylon for 70 years. But this prophecy is spoken 150 years before Cyrus is born. So this is not Isaiah speaking to Cyrus who's alive at that point. He's speaking to a man named Cyrus that God will use to deliver his people 150 plus years from this point. So he says a lot of things to him. Now Cyrus is a a type of Jesus just like Moses was a type of Jesus concerning the deliverance of his people and the rebuilding of the temple. So I want you to see some things that God says about Cyrus. Um, Verse 2, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by my name, by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now let me ask you a question. Cyrus was not a covenant partner with God. He's a type of Jesus in the work that he does. But it's not like God says, I'm going to pick Cyrus because he's my favorite, because he's really going to be something. He's going to keep the law of Moses. He's going to be of the seed of Abraham or any of that stuff. He just picks a man, an ungodly man, an unsaved man. Of course, everybody was unsaved in that day, but you know what I mean, a man outside the covenant of God. For the work that he has for him to do to deliver his people. Now, would God do more for an ungodly king than he would for his children? As I said, this is a type of Jesus, just like Moses was a type of Jesus, delivering the children of Israel out of the land of of, uh, Egypt. But you remember the blessings of of, uh, God that were upon Moses didn't just end with Moses. Moses was a type of Jesus in delivering the people, God's family, into salvation by crossing the Red Sea. But Joshua picked up where Moses left off and took the children of Israel, which is a type of the church, into the promised land. So in the same manner, Cyrus is a type of Jesus that will deliver the children of Israel from the bondage of the Babylonians, but still, still the blessings of God and even greater blessings of God belong to the church in the promised land. So he says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness, uh, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. Now, the word form and create can mean two different things. They can mean to make and or to cut down. 
Now, he's using a contrast here. So he says, I form the light, which means I make the light. And the word create has to be determined to mean either to make or to cut down. Well, how did God form the light? By cutting down the darkness. By looking into the darkness and saying, light be. So the translators, who obviously didn't have a a great understanding of how God's character is and how God's works operate according to his word is what we do because revelation is progressive translated i form the light and create darkness god didn't create the darkness he cut down the darkness with the light so it should read i form the light and cut down darkness i make peace and create evil some people have used this verse of scripture to say that god's the author of evil it's the same word create he's saying i either make it or i cut it down well when he's talking about making peace he's talking about a contrast with evil i make peace and cut down evil I, the Lord, do all these things. Uh, Skip down with me to verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. Now, it sounds like God saying to Cyrus, an unsaved king, that he has the opportunity to command God to do certain works. Well, the word command may be a little bit difficult, but it's exactly the same principle as what Jesus said. Whatever you call upon or require in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, if God gave this ability to an unsaved king in the Old Testament, certainly not a righteous man, he was not a righteous king, he did a lot of bad stuff. But if God gave this ability... Or he's identifying, I don't believe he's just giving him this ability at this point in time. But if he's identifying that Cyrus has this opportunity and has this authority, why would that be? Because he's a man operating on the earth according to God's plan and purpose. Well, then what authority should we have concerning the work of God's hands? Even greater authority because we're doing things according to what his word identifies as the works of Jesus. If God made this promise and this revelation to Cyrus and it doesn't belong to us, then God's unfair. Ask me of things to come concerning my and concerning my sons, command you me. Now I messed that up. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command you me. What's God saying? As you've spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. The unchanging eternal law of God's the same. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Folks, I'm trying to build a case here that God's seed is in you and there's an eternal law that governs everything that we do here on this earth. Jesus has been accused of casting out devils by the prince of the power of, uh, or by the power of the devils, Beelzebub. And he's answering that uh, criticism, that complaint. He says in verse 32, Matthew 12, verse 32, And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or neither in the world to come. Now I want you to notice verse 23. He's talking about words that you speak. He says, Either make the tree good, and his fruit good, or either make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. 
other words, he's saying men's lives are known by the words that they speak, by their words and their deeds. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, the heart he's talking about is the spirit. A good man, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. Well, those good things would be good words and actions, good words and deeds. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things, evil words and evil deeds. But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. How come? Because there's an eternal and unchanging law of God. God deals with us according to the words that we speak. Finally, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. I believe Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, and he's writing to the Jews who are the only ones in the world that really know of the history that we have record of in the Scripture, the only ones that would really have any understanding of the covenant that God made with Abraham and how it carried through to Jesus and and the meanings and so forth. At least they were intended to. That's the way God wanted it to be. And so Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Paul is trying to encourage them to hold fast to the things that they've heard. Notice beginning in verse 5, he says, For unto the angels has he not put into subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, one meaning the angel. He's talking about Psalm 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou made him a little lower than the angels. In the original Hebrew that this is quoting is the word Elohim. It means the Godhead. I think we mentioned that earlier. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels of the Godhead. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now I want you to notice, folks, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about man. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, he's saying, but it sure doesn't look that way now, does it? And that's people's complaint. If we've been given authority, if man has authority and dominion on the earth, then why are things the way that they are in the earth? Well, if we don't see everything the way that it's supposed to be yet, what do we see? Verse 9, but we see Jesus. He's our example who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Notice it was just for a period of time. It's saying the same thing as uh, Philippians chapter 2 tells us where Jesus made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself of heavenly or divine power and glory and came to the earth and was found in fashion as a man. That's what this means. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the Godhead for the suffering of death. He took upon himself flesh for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor following the resurrection that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Thank God he tasted it for you and me. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through the sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified. 
Now, he's not just talking about Jesus. Jesus was sanctified when the life of God came back upon him when he finished paying the price for sin. The Bible says he was the firstborn among many brethren. But if he was the firstborn from spiritual death, that means he had to die spiritually. But notice it's saying God and those who are sanctified are all of one. We're made in the image and likeness of God. The new birth brings us into a place of righteousness or sanctification, as the scripture tells us here. For both he that sanctifies God and they who are sanctified, the church, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Now, you may be ashamed of yourself. But the scripture says that Jesus is not ashamed of you. And if we are ashamed of ourselves, it's because we don't understand the, 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 the reach of righteousness. We don't understand how far reaching righteousness is. God's not ashamed of you. Doesn't mean you don't stumble and fall. Doesn't mean you don't miss it. But you pick yourself up and you confess your sins and you get right back over in fellowship with him. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Jesus, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. Now we think of the word destroy means to, to annihilate and cause somebody to cease to exist. That's not what this word destroy means. It means to render useless, idle, or ineffective. He didn't do away with the devil. He just did away with the devil's effectiveness in hindering you from what belongs to you because of his sacrifice. He took part of the same flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him, render useless him that had the power of death and that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death. Remember the first thing Adam said? I heard your voice and I was afraid. It doesn't mean fear of death. Uh, well, how do I say this? The phrase fear of death has always kind of bothered me. But it, I believe that it means, you judge this for yourself, but I believe that it means fear associated with the things of death. For example, people are afraid they're not going to make it. People are afraid they're going to die of sickness and disease because of the doctor's report. They're afraid that they, they're, they're not going to make it over. They're afraid they're not going to receive from God. They're afraid of all the different things that the circumstances of life will influence them to think. Because spiritual death is the, is the, the kingdom of darkness and the influence is upon us all. Notice what he's talking about. He rendered useless or ineffective the one that had the power of death. So that he would set us free from the fear of death. From the fear of not being able to receive. The fear of not making it. The fear of not being good enough. The fear of whatever. Fill in the blank. Whatever fear comes against you. Whatever the devil tells you to be afraid of. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subjects to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now skip with me over to chapter 3, verse 1. 
The whole thing is talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, taking a, uh, uh, paying the price for death so that you could be free, so that he could be a merciful high priest. What's he the high priest of? Chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The word profession is the word confession. It means the spoken word. A high priest ministers on the people's behalf to God. What does Jesus minister on your behalf? Your words. Why? Because the eternal unchanging law of God is that God deals with us according to the words that we speak. Now notice the example that Paul gives. We won't go through the whole thing, but notice the example that Paul gives to try to make the point. The next three or four verses are about how Jesus was faithful in the work that God gave him to do. So he says that we should be like him and hold firm unto the end. Verse 7, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. What's he talking about? What example does he use when he's talking about Jesus being the high priest of our confession? He's talking about Numbers chapter 13 where the ten spies came back with the evil report. Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report, but the congregation believed the majority report and lifted up their voices and cried and said, oh, if only we had died in the wilderness. He goes further. Verse 10, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Departing from the living God is talking about their example where they spoke against God and said we can't do what God said we could do. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it feels like we're not going to make it. I understand. That's why you have to speak from your heart instead of what you see or how you feel. Because the eternal law of God is not God will deal with you according to how you feel. The eternal unchanging law of God is God will deal with you according to what you say and speak into his ears. And folks, I've got to tell you, if the Bible is true, that's the only thing Jesus has to work with, with you or me both. The words that we speak. Verse 19 concludes it and says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. What was the unbelief identified by? The words of their mouth. You are created after God's own kind. The seed is in itself. The seed of what you desire is within you. And God deals with you according to the words that you speak. Instead of looking at the circumstance and say, well, my symptoms are getting worse. Well, what if they are? How is saying it going to help you? Yeah, but you don't understand, Pastor Mike. I'm just saying things the way that they are. Then you'll keep having them the way that they are. Yeah, but I'd be lying if I said something other than the way things are. How can you possibly be lying if you say what God said? You don't have to address your circumstances or your symptoms either one. Just say, according to the word of God, I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. According to God's word, he supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Whatever the circumstance is, or situation is, I mean. There's always some scripture, some word from God that you can speak. And it's impossible to lie when you're speaking God's words. 
But that's so critical because the, ever, the eternal unchanging law of God is that God deals with you according to the words that you speak. His seed is in you. But you have to plant that seed. You have to keep watering that seed. Well, how long are we supposed to say this? I don't know about you, but I'm going to say it till it's real. I'm going to say it till the changes. I'm going to say it till the situation turns around and I don't have a need to say it anymore. It's impossible to lie when you're speaking God's word. Yeah, but other people think I'm a fanatic. They don't understand this faith business. Well, of course they don't. Since the natural man can't understand the things of God. Your natural mind can't even understand the things of God. That's why the, the, the God kind of faith is not doubt in your heart instead of not doubting in your head. If the Bible required us to not doubt in our head, nobody would make it. Because no matter how much you renew your mind, there's always going to be an opportunity for the devil to bring doubt against your thinking. Brother Hagin used to say the greatest and the strongest Christian, the greatest saint of God and the strongest Christian, no matter how strong you think they are, no matter how great in faith you think they are, have always had doubt in their minds while they were speaking the word. See, the devil will tell you there's something wrong with you because the doubt that comes to your thinking. It's the same way with everybody. It's not doubt in your mind that stops the thing from working. It's the words of your mouth speaking in contradiction to what God said that will keep it from working. And that's the only thing that will keep it from working. Because his seed is in you. The seed is in yourself. And that seed is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. Thank you, Lord, that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Thank you, Father, that it's just as much your will for us to walk in health here as it will be for us to walk in health in heaven. We thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to prospers. Because we walk according to your plan and your purpose. We thank you that all of our needs are met according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the windows of heaven are open unto us. And you are pouring out a blessing that there is not room enough to receive. Thank you, Father, that the word of God works for us in every situation. In every circumstance. Thank you, Father. That you said that those that believe in you shall never be ashamed shall never be ashamed because your word always works. We bless you for it, Lord. We thank you for working in our lives, even according to that which we've spoken. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.